It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. We, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to Mic'd Up, an unapologetic, low-country-based podcast from the Charleston Activist Network. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. And on this episode, I sit down with someone I've been just just dying to speak with for the longest time. Yes, I am a prisoner of the moment. Yes, I'm going to already say that this episode is in the top five of my favorite mic'd up episodes of all time. Uh, but but nah, you'll, you'll see why. It's just um, I, I'm just stoked when it comes to history. You know, history informs much of my activism work and, and I try to use history or help you all uh, leverage, you know, our past, our shared past and, and to, to inform the work we do in contemporary times. And so on this episode, I sit with park ranger Chris Barr from the Reconstruction Era National Historical Park. Um, and he talks all about Reconstruction. We talk about the movie Glory. We talk about the parallels between the Reconstruction Era and the current Black Lives Matter movement. And so you won't want to miss this. So um, I pre-recorded this this interview, so I'm going to go ahead and sign off now. But I also want to invite you to please, please visit the, uh, the, the, the show notes, the description of this show, because within it, I'll have links to the Reconstruction Park and also links to uh, some of the things mentioned during the interview, like books and, and movies and other references. So please make sure you visit the show notes to find out more information on how you can gain access to the park or access to any of the park's materials, okay? So until next week, y'all, please stay well, stay masked up, wash your hands, stay home if you can, and to all my Gullah Geechee people, all my black people, y'all stay black. Okay, welcome, Chris. Welcome to Mic'd Up. Thank you so much for joining me. Go ahead and introduce yourself to our listening audience. Yeah, my name is uh, Chris Barr, and uh, I'm one of the interpretive park rangers at Reconstruction Era National Historical Park, uh, just a few hours down the road from you in uh, Beaufort, South Carolina. And thank you so much, Chris, uh, for joining me. I'm a huge fan of your work. Um, I had the pleasure, the distinct pleasure of having you guide me uh, as I visited the Reconstruction Era Monument for the first time um, a few months ago. And it was great to just learn from you, also to know that we have a couple of, uh, maybe one or two mutuals in common. I'm not quite sure. Um, and But also, too, you and I, I if you don't mind me taking this liberty, you and I share a passion for South Carolina history. So I want you to just tell folks more about your career and what brought you to this monument, if you can just share a little bit about that. Yeah, certainly. So uh, like a lot of people that work for the National Park Service, I have sort of a circuitous route to getting here. Um, I am not uh, a native South Carolinian. I'm, I'm, I'm Hopefully your, your listeners won't get too upset to know that I'm from Georgia. Um, I'm from, from Southwest, rural Southwest Georgia, um, studied history in college. And uh, the town I grew up in was a uh, town that, for lack of a better way of wording it, it had been a hotbed during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Uh, a lot of my teachers were, were folks who had gone out and marched. Uh, and so that sort of sparked a little bit of an interest in that history for me. Um, and so then I ended up becoming a high school history teacher, uh, actually at my alma mater, teaching alongside some of, some of my old teachers, which was a little weird sometimes. Uh, but then I ended up getting involved with the National Park Service, the program at Andersonville National Historic Site that the Park Service does uh, to try to bring on teachers to write like field trip, lesson plan, curriculum materials, uh, things like that. Um, and then from there, that kind of turned into a uh, a permanent job. Like I ended up working at Andersonville as a permanent park ranger. Um, and that was really where my passion for sort of this reconstruction story really took off. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, Andersonville was a uh, Civil War prison camp. Um, so it's a national park site, fairly traditional uh, Civil War uh, oriented site. Uh, but it had this reconstruction story that not a lot of people had done work with, right? Uh, and basically, right after the Civil War, there was this huge freedman community. 
uh, basically moved into the old prison site. They were the earliest people taking care of the cemetery, celebrating Emancipation Days, Memorial Days. Uh, and this was going on all through the late 1860s and 70s. Um, and so I really sort of fell in love with that story and telling that story. And uh, as they say, you know, kind of down the rabbit hole I went on, on reconstruction. Um, from there, I ended up working at uh, Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park uh, for a while, kind of the same thing, uh, doing a lot of uh, programming on sort of the post-Civil War period, especially dealing with African-American history. Uh, and over the course of that, that sort of got me on the Park Service's radar. Uh, so when Reconstruction Era National uh, Monument, it was initially called, but it's since been redesignated. Uh, but when it was initially established in uh, January of 2017, January 12th to be specific, uh, the, the Park Service's regional office kind of reached out to me about helping out with some of the website and social media stuff. So uh, some of those first Facebook posts, for example, that Reconstruction Era National Monument at the time uh, was doing, that was me and some of the, uh, me and a few other people were writing all that stuff. So tell me more about the Reconstruction Era Monument. I know you just mentioned how, you know, you became, you fell in love yeah. with the history, but the monument itself, I don't think mm -hmm. people even know it's in existence. Right. Uh, you know, we, we certainly are one of the newer units of the national park system. Uh, so just, you know, I know this isn't a, exactly an exciting term, but a little bit of the administrative history, I guess, of the park uh, was Reconstruction Era National Monument uh, was first designated on January 12, 2017 as a national monument uh, during the last weeks of the Obama administration. Um, and this park, and, and I know the, that designation, National Monument versus National Park, uh, all of those designations are just a reflection of the mechanism by which the park was created, right? So parks that were established through executive order are designated as monuments, and then parks that have like a legislative establishment uh, have some other name to it, usually like National Park, National Historical Park. So uh, we were initially Reconstruction Air National Monument. We've since been redesignated. Uh, Reconstruction Era National Historical Park. But uh, uh, we were first established in 2017 to tell the story of Reconstruction everywhere in the United States, kind of using the events of the South Carolina Low Country, especially here in Beaufort County, uh, during and shortly after the Civil War, is kind of a case study to talk about everywhere, right? So sort of the way that this park was was initially intended was, okay, well, we're going to talk about, for example, African-American education during Reconstruction. Well, great, we'll talk about the Penn School on St. Helena Island. Uh, and so that's kind of how this uh, park was, uh, was initially created uh, and sort of how it, it, how it functions a little bit. Um, the park itself has uh, sort of three major areas, if you will. Uh, we've got a little small visitor center downtown, uh, downtown Beaufort, South Carolina. Uh, 706 Craven Street, uh, and and so we do have a little small visitor center there, and from and from there we can kind of walk and explore through downtown Beaufort, some of the reconstruction stories there. Uh, big one there, of course, in downtown being uh, the Robert Smalls story, who, you know, people in Charleston are probably relatively familiar with Robert Smalls uh, capturing a Confederate ship, the Planter, in Charleston Harbor uh, in 1862, sailing it out to the U.S. Navy, um, you know, freeing his family along the way. Uh, well, Robert Smalls was, was given a cash prize uh, for that uh, ship, the planter, um, and he used that money to come back to Beaufort uh, and buy his enslaver's old mansion, um, which is a great story. I, I love the fact that he came back uh, and bought the mansion that belonged to the man who once once owned him. Um, I never, I, I never, I had to jump in. I never oh, heard that I have never heard that part of the story. I, I recently bought the book that's in your feet, one of the books about him that's in the okay. gift shop and I'm starting it now. And wow, thank you for sharing that part. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that may be my favorite part of the story. I mean, it's, it's, you know, Robert Smalls born in, in April of 1839 and from a relatively young age, you know, he is leased, right? And that's a part of slave slavery that people don't talk about a whole lot, but he's basically leased out to a dockyard um, up in Charleston. But yeah, then he comes back and literally just buys this mansion. And that's his house for the rest of his life. Uh, ends up serving uh, five terms in U.S. Congress. Uh, he, he is uh, part of the group that writes the South Carolina Constitution of 1868, uh, which is sort of South Carolina's first uh, 
biracial um, is, is maybe not quite the right word, but it's, but it's first sort of post-slavery uh, constitution. Uh, he was one of the people helping write that. Uh, one of the things he really advocated for uh, was public education, getting that in the constitution uh, as, as being a, a fundamental right of all South Carolinians. And then he's, you know, he, he, he's buried just uh, right around the corner from our visitor center. So as we're kind of talking about these three areas of the park, right, we've got, you know, our visitor centers in the old Buford Firehouse right across from the arsenal. But his house uh, at 511 Prince Street uh, is just about a two or three block walk away. Um, and, his, and his grave at Tabernacle Baptist Church is two blocks away. It's also on Craven Street. Uh, so again, that's sort of one of the ways that we can talk about reconstruction in downtown Buford is everything from say issues of land redistribution and property redistribution. Uh, as we talk about Robert Smalls buying that house at a tax auction, uh, as we talk about the growth of, of you know, politics and governance during reconstruction, I mean, Smalls is in Congress. Uh, many of those old big antebellum mansions that are all over downtown Buford, uh, a lot of those were offices and schools uh, for different government agencies during reconstruction. Um, the other area, the other two areas of our park, um, one is, is one I know that, that, uh, that we, you and I went out to, um, which is uh, the site of Camp Saxton, um, which is down in Port Royal, um, so just, you know, five-minute drive up the road from, from downtown Beaufort. Um, and Camp Saxton was one of the places where black men were first recruited into the U.S. Army uh, during the Civil War. They, they really got started there in the late summer, early fall of 1862. And so, you know, people ask sometimes, what, is, what does that have to do with Reconstruction? Isn't Reconstruction a post-Civil War story? Well, you know, Frederick Douglass, uh, I think, worded it best. He said, you know, and I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote here, but he said, once let the black man get upon his person, an eagle on his button, uh, bullets in his pocket, a musket on his shoulder, and there's no power on earth that can deny he's earned the rights to citizenship. And so when we think about Camp Saxton, these men joining the U.S. Army down there, this is some of the first steps towards citizenship, which is ultimately going to become enshrined uh, in the 14th Amendment, uh, ratified in July of 1868. Uh, the other area of the park, uh, probably the most visible area of the park, I think the place most people have heard of, um, is, the, the, is Penn School. Uh, the campus of the Penn School, it was, it was first set up in 1862. Uh, they met in the Brick Baptist Church, which is right there across the, across the present day highway from Penn Center. Um, and it functioned as a school for primarily African-American residents on St. Helena Island uh, from, the, from the late 1862 when they moved into the church uh, all the way until 1948. That was the last graduating class for Penn Center um, or Penn School. And then it uh, reorganized and became sort of a civil rights institute, a training facility for community organizers. Uh, a lot of the civil rights uh, kind of activists that were going out across the country were coming to Penn Center. Uh, for training and, and things like that. Uh, the most famous uh, example of that is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, loved coming to Penn Center. Um, uh, you know, he would, he would come on a retreat, stay at one of the little cabin, uh, cottages there called Gantt Cottage. Um, you know, the story goes that he actually wrote parts of the I Have a Dream speech there on the campus of Penn Center, which to me is a neat reconstruction connection. I mean, because ultimately what is Martin Luther King and, and everybody in the civil rights movement fighting for. And that's, you know, this promise of reconstruction, which was basically this promise of black citizenship and equality. Uh, and to me, I think it's neat that, that some of these civil rights folks were there in the sixties in the same place where just a hundred years ago, this idea of reconstruction was born. So again, I know that was sort of a long convoluted, uh, way of sort of saying we have three areas of the park. Um, again, a little visitor center downtown Beaufort, uh, the campus of the Penn Center, um, and then uh, the site of Camp Saxton um, out on Port Royal Island. So that's sort I, I of what the park is. Yeah, I don't mind you taking a, um, the scenic route throughout that. I, I really appreciate <laughs> that. I, I hope that the listeners appreciate that too, because I think, um, you know, that's part of your gift in terms of uh, you, how did you characterize your job at the um, at the monument as a what type of ranger? Uh, so in the National Park Service, we have two different types of park rangers, right? We have law enforcement rangers, basically police officers. Uh, and then we have what we call interpretive park rangers. Um, interpretive park ranger is just sort of 
fancy in the profession speak for we're the park rangers to get to go out and tell stories, help people make connections to places. The reason we use the word interpretation in the park service a lot um, is the idea that it's, it's our job is to sort of take a place and sort of interpret it, just like somebody who would be interpreting between two different languages, right? So kind of take a place and interpret it into a modern audience so that some, so that some place that was significant, you know, 150 years ago, is relevant for somebody today in 2020. So right. So so when someone, um, I liken it to when I relocated down back to this area, um, roughly, you know, a few years ago, um, several years or more than several years ago, I visited the McLeod Plantation, mm-hmm. and it feels like the guides there. Now, is that a state park or is that something different? Yeah, so McLeod Plantation, uh, I believe it's a state park. So it's not run by the National Park System, um, but uh, but I, I do believe it's a it's a state park. It's either state, it might be county. It's either state or county. I don't remember their uh, exact administrative. Uh, yeah, but but you'll see that same phrase: interpretive rangers, interpretive guides. That's not a term that's unique to the Park Service. Gotcha. And so I I brought that up and asked that question specifically because I do think that that really helps folks connect with the history. I know that that's what I benefited from when I visited uh, you and your colleagues um, down down your way. Um, I wanted to ask you, could an argument be made or is there even any plans to grow the footprint of the monument, let's say to areas like Charleston, or, or are there other cities that have a significant reconstruction history where maybe a satellite, I don't know if that works like that, a satellite area of this park could exist? Oh, I hope you like uh, long circuitous answers with lots of little stories woven in and out. Uh, go, so go, the, go, go, go. <laughs> the, uh, so, so in short, uh, yeah, Reconstruction is not a story that is just limited to the South Carolina Lowcountry, right? You know, typically when you think about a national park, you're thinking about, okay, well, there's something that happens in this place. And Reconstruction does happen in this place, but it sort of begins here, the sort of the case study for it. But Reconstruction happens in literally every community, every zip code in the United States. And I do mean even Alaska and Hawaii, right? Reconstruction is this process by which we transition from being a slave society to one that is not. And that is a process that is being struggled through throughout the mid to late 19th century um, and beyond uh, in literally everywhere. I mean, and and that's, that, that incorporates everything from say like uh, uh, for example, out West uh, is the U S is sort of growing West in the aftermath of the civil war there's lots of people, uh, both black and white citizens, are going out west to try to find a new life, to escape violence. Well, then that's helped sparking some of the Indian Wars out on the Great Plains. I mean, like, there's Reconstruction stories to be found everywhere. There's Reconstruction stories to be found uh, across Charleston. So, for example, uh, the two examples I'm going to give you is that uh, you mentioned McLeod Plantation. Uh, during the late 1860s and early 1870s, the McLeod Plantation was the hub uh, for the Freedmen, what was a hub for the Freedmen's Bureau um, here in the region. So, you know, most people, when we think about the McLeod Plantation and the great work that they're doing, uh, interpreting the role of slavery in, uh, on this plantation, you know, it's a place with a really cool reconstruction story. Um, the other neat story uh, related to Charleston that, that I find fascinating is, uh, I think it's in July of 1870, uh, right after the, the 15th Amendment's been ratified, which uh, is supposed to grant black citizens the right to vote, black men the right to vote. Um, as you know, the, the, the struggle for black women to get the vote uh, is going to take significantly longer. But after the ratification of the 15th Amendment, uh, the black residents of Charleston, as many as eight or 10,000, piled down into what's now you know, that area right around the Battery. And they staged this like day and a half long procession, right? This, and it goes into the night. Uh, the newspaper accounts talk about uh, like what is that? I think it's King Street. Like they're marching up and down King Street with like torches out at like two o'clock in the morning, uh, singing singing songs, John Brown's body, stuff like this. Um, and that's a celebration of of black voting. Um, so, first part of your question is, you know, well, are there Reconstruction stories everywhere? And the answer is absolutely. Um, it it doesn't matter where you're listening from. There's a Reconstruction story to to be found. Um, 
Now, is the park going to expand? Uh, that's a little bit more of a, of, of a, of a fun discussion, I think. Um, the, the park, was, well, we do have, uh, it was created in March of 2019. It's called the Reconstruction Era National Historic Network. Um, so if anybody's familiar with the National Park Service's Underground Railroad Network to Freedom, uh, this is going to be very similar to that. But it's going to be a network of reconstruction sites located throughout the country. Um, that was uh, officially created, uh, was established through legislation in March of 2019 um, with sort of an official establishment date of March of 2020. So right as we were kind of getting ready to start rolling out some announcements about that and uh, saying, oh, here's some sites that are, that, that are going to be a part of the network uh, is kind of right when, uh, right when the pandemic uh, began. So, uh, so some of that we're, we're kind of I don't want to say we're sitting on it because we're not sitting on it. There, there's a lot of work uh, going on behind the scenes, but we want to make sure that those sites get, get the attention that they deserve. Um, but so they're not necessarily going to be a part of the park, right? It's not going to become a part of our park footprint because we're not trying to come into say Charleston and, uh, and like take over some historic site and take over their story. Um, but it's going to be a network that provides support, whether that's research support, whether that's, um, you know, help trying to help host trainings for, for staff uh, to be able to better tell their reconstruction stories. So uh, this reconstruction era network is something that we're really excited about here. Um, and that's something that was really being pushed for. I mentioned, you know, through the legislation, uh, that was things like Congressman Clyburn's office was uh, Congressman Clyburn and his office were some of the folks really pushing for that. So, uh, so certainly South Carolina is going to be well represented uh, in the reconstruction era national historic network. Well, and thank you so much for uh, sharing that aspect that I don't think folks, I know I didn't know about the network. And I think that's something to look forward to. And it's also great to hear that um, there are lawmakers um, who have made this a priority, lawmakers from the state of South Carolina who are making it a priority, who have made it a priority to to um, to, to share this history. Um, is there an, a lesser known reconstruction story you can share about Charleston, specifically about the city of Charleston. We, we do know about, you know, we know about the Robert Small stories, um, but are, maybe there are, there are other stories that you could share? Yeah. So, uh, you know, for starters, you know, when we think about this process of reconstruction, right? I mean, again, it's this process by which we go from being a slave society, which what is now the United States had been a slave society. You know, you want to use 1619 as the date, um, you know, at least that far, arguably going back farther. I mean, the Spanish certainly had enslaved people, enslaved Africans here in the South Carolina Low Country well before 1619. Um, and so it was over 200, it was 250 years that we, this nation or this society was uh, sort of revolved around the, the institution of slavery and controlling the black population. And that process of how do you stop that is not something that just a light switch goes on overnight. It's not just big events, right? This, this experience of going through this transition is something that's going to be happening at a personal level. And so when I think about like these untold stories, I think about, you know, people, I don't even have names for them, right? I mean, it, it's, you know, I sort of think about, you know, that, that dad who's maybe, maybe it's, it's 1871 and he's 30 years old. Um, so he's born right around 1840, you know, when he was a teenager, you know, he's an enslaved laborer on some cotton or rice plantation here in the low country. And suddenly it's 1871 and he's taking his kid to vote. And I just think about like, what's that conversation like? To me, that's some of the powerful untold stories. Um, now, as far as just sort of big stories that people might want to go, Oh, what, let me learn more about that. Um, I'm still trying to work on the research on this uh, because I just sort of fell into this uh, a couple of days ago, actually. Um, but in the 1870s and 1880s, there was actually a, uh, a series of, of you know, a lot of people are familiar with the Negro Leagues baseball. Um, there was sort of a pre-Negro Leagues, Negro Leagues throughout the southeastern United States. Uh, and Charleston had a team. Uh, Savannah had a couple of teams. Uh, this is in the 1870s, 1880s. Uh, the team in Charleston, I think they were called the Fultons, uh, was the team name. And so it's sort of untold stories. Like, I'm a big baseball fan. That's sort of my next rabbit hole is I got to find out some more about uh, 
about this Charleston baseball team in the 1870s and 1880s. Yeah, no, you and I both, um, and um, I'm trying to uh, suppress some of my disappointment in some of the tweets I've been reading about the seasons or, or games being canceled. But I love the fact that you find these little gems, and again, you're still you're still uh, uh, working on research about maybe you know the team that may or may not be called the Fultons. But it's uncanny how much um, I guess how much Black history exists. I think when you say Reconstruction history, to me, it was a multiracial um, type of government institution. Um, you had black lawmakers serving alongside white lawmakers. But when I think of reconstruction history, I do think of like arguably the most progressive point in our political, in our country's political history. And I think, I think of it largely as black history. And I, and I think it's, it's some, it's a point of pride when you discover things like a baseball team that predates the Negro leagues. And, um, you know, people just don't have that connection yet. And you're helping to strengthen that connection. I, I wanted to ask you, if you don't mind me kind of jump jumping to another subject yeah, sure. real real quick. Um, so we just met, we just uh celebrated two, you know, two big uh holidays this summer. Um, but the most recent holiday that we just celebrated was the July fourth holiday. Mm-hmm. Is there is there any specific um Either July 4th or Memorial Day, are there any specific uh, Reconstruction factoids that you'd like to share with folks? Oh, man, you're, you're going to get me in trouble. You brought up Memorial Day. Um, <laughs> yep. You're going to get me in Uh-oh. so much trouble. Oh, my controversy. God. Oh, controversy. No, no, not even controversy. Like, you know, how, mu- how much time you got. Um, so <laughs> as, as I mentioned, so part of my background is sort of how I became a Reconstruction historian was sort of exploring this, this black community that emerged around Andersonville Prison Camp, which had been Civil War Prison Camp, a huge national cemetery there. There were about 13,000 uh, U.S. soldiers died in captivity at the hands of the Confederacy there. And it's this black community that emerges around that cemetery uh, to sort of become or to celebrate Memorial Day, right? Memorial Day around national cemetery communities became an Emancipation Day. Right. So like if you're if you're a black citizen living around a national cemetery, say like in 1870, you aren't celebrating Juneteenth. You probably aren't celebrating January 1st. You're celebrating Decoration Day, as it was called back then. Um, And so some of my uh, some of my background as a researcher is actually diving in on some of these early Memorial Days as expressions of emancipation uh, or celebrations of emancipation. And and certainly one of the most famous examples of that uh, is right there in Charleston. and uh, in May of 1860, uh, May of 1865, we're backing up a little bit here. We're going down the, the prison rabbit hole. Um, there had been a prison camp in Charleston um, at the old Planters Race Course, um, which is today uh, basically the little running track that's right there by the Citadel. Um, I actually ran in the Charleston Marathon this past January, and we literally just sort of ran that loop as part of the marathon. And I was probably the only person thinking about this um, as we ran. Uh, but uh, so there were a couple hundred Union prisoners who had died in captivity at this, at this prison camp. Well, in May of 1865, you know, the war is over, slavery is dead, and the black residents of Charleston, we need to do something. We want to celebrate. And so they literally go out to this, to this uh, race course and these graves, you know, think of it as just sort of a mass grave. I mean, like just trenches, you know, very shallow, buried not really even marked, you know, not, not like headstones that we would think of, just basically like little boards poking up, marking that there's a body here. Um, and they said, this is unacceptable. And so they went out and it was the black, excuse me, the black residents of Charleston went out, uh, reburied everybody so that they were at risk of sounding too, too crass here, um, reburied everybody so that they wouldn't be sticking up out of the ground at all. Um, set in better headboards for everybody, uh, planted a bunch of flowers, uh, decorated all the graves. Uh, they hung a sign up over the, um, over the entrance that said, that, that said these were the martyrs of the race course. And then they staged this huge parade around the racetrack, uh, celebrating um, these men who died in captivity, these men who gave up their freedom so that others might be free. Um, there's actually an account from Andersonville that talks about uh, this, uh, and, I, and, and I bring this up just because I love the phrase. It was a newspaper writer um, visiting Andersonville, uh, and I think it's in 1869, 
1966 rather, and he, and he describes the black community around the cemetery as saying, uh, he says, they looked upon uh, the mortal remains of, of our dead. Um, uh, oh, I'm messing up the quote here. Uh, he says, he looked up, basically says the, the, the line that he uses is he says, uh, they looked upon the dead as those through whose sufferings and death a race rose up from chains. Um, and so to me, that's always a really fascinating way of framing things like Memorial Day, um, Decoration Day as it was known back then. I mean, again, one of those earliest Decoration Day uh, activities as, as an expression of emancipation during Reconstruction, again, took place right there in Charleston, in a place uh, that probably a lot of your listeners are, are quite familiar with. Um, maybe it's where you walk your dog now. I mean, that's, that's literally one of the, one of the, the first places uh, where black citizens really sort of stage this huge celebration um, anywhere in the South. Um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, Hampton Park, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, and, and though they're not buried there any longer. They were, uh, right. they were reinterred here uh, a few years after the war. Um, so they're actually here at Beaufort National Cemetery. You know, I don't know which graves they are, but they're, they're in Beaufort National now. Chris, thank you for sharing that. I did not know that they were, okay. I knew they weren't there, but I had no clue. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that gets down the rabbit hole of the federal reburial program uh, a little bit, <laughs> um, which was a post-war program to move uh, union dead um, black and white into consolidate them into national cemeteries. Um, and most of that work was undertaken by black citizens Right. I mean, it, it's the U.S. Army goes into the places like in the Deep South and says, hey, look, we're, we need we need laborers. We're paying. And so for a lot of people who had just maybe a year earlier been enslaved, their first wages they earn is working for the United States government. Digging up oh. dead soldiers and moving them into national cemeteries building oh. those walls around the cemetery, setting the headstones. Almost all of that is done by, by, by formerly enslaved people. Wow. You know, um, so I was going to ask you a question about glory because I know that's a trigger for you. Um, <laughs> but, but I want to first ask, so, so, that, so that group of, of Black soldiers that, that perished in the movie, that we see portrayed in uh -huh. the movie glory, glory, that's not historically accurate, and you're going to tell us why in a second. <laughs> But but in that movie, are those soldiers were they uh, exhumed and reburied someplace else? Or do we not know? No. So the the men who were killed killed on the field at Fort Wagner um, killed killed you know that the, their bodies fell into Confederate hands uh, were buried in a mass grave on the beach um, and left there, um, including Colonel Shaw. Robert Cold Shaw was buried with them. The Confederates did that because they, they believed that would be an insult. Uh, to this, you know, white rich kid to be buried with with a bunch of black soldiers, uh, and his parents said, "Nope, that's a part. That's a mark of pride. We're proud our son is buried alongside them." Um, wow. But the guys who were say wounded and right, most Civil War dead don't die on the battlefield. Right, you're you're injured and you die a week later. Um, a lot of those guys were brought back here to Buford. Um, there was a hospital downtown right around the corner from our visitor center. Um, right next to near Robert Small's house, uh, the, the house that was used as a hospital. Um, and so a lot of those guys died in the days and weeks afterwards uh, and, are, and are buried at Buford National Cemetery. Um, so so let's, let's back it up then. So what did Glory, the people, a lot of people love this movie. I grew up, we had to watch it in like high school or wherever. Tell me what they got wrong. <laughs> Tell me what they got wrong. <laughs> well, so, so, for starters, uh, my, my earliest memory of glory was uh, when I was really little, for about two or three years, we lived on St. Simon's. Um, it was back in the late 80s. Uh, and I was probably five or six, I guess. Uh, and I remember going out to the beach and you could sort of hear this distant boom, 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 while they were filming the Fort Wagner sequence at Jekyll Island. Um, everybody just kind of do those movie going on. Um, they did actually find, uh, I don't remember if it was through construction work or some metal detector type folks, um, but actually found remains of not men from the 54th Massachusetts, but the 55th Massachusetts, which was sort of their sister regiment that was also in Charleston for a while. Um, they found the remains of some of those men um, buried near what was probably one of their campsites, probably guys who died of disease. Uh, and those guys were found in 1987 
uh, and were reinterred here at Beaufort National in 1989 on Memorial Day. And actually, a lot of the cast from the movie Glory came down uh, in uniform and were sort of the, served as sort of this USCT honor guard um, for the re, for the reburial of these black soldiers uh, who were recovered in Charleston. Um, so as far as you know, the I don't want to get down the rabbit hole of what it gets wrong or right or anything like that, but what I what I love about that movie, and, and, and I, you know, in my opinion, and again, this is just sort of my humble opinion, um, it's, it remains the best Civil War movie made. Um, it's got great characters. Um, it tells a, a, an amazing story. Um, and to be honest, it depicts Civil War Reconstruction, Shannara Buford, um, right? Because here we say that Reconstruction began during the war, and you're seeing that in the movie, right? I mean, they unload there, and as they go through uh, in the movies, like when they go, go through the camp and you see all the black soldiers wearing the red pants, that's the first South Carolina. That's Camp Saxton. I mean, we see Camp Saxton on screen, right? Um, the first and second South Carolina infantry, um, which those are all men who were from uh, the area right around here. The first South Carolina uh, is made up of primarily men uh, who were uh, from, from the islands right here, right around Beaufort. Uh, you know, Port Royal, Ladies Island, Dadaw, um, you know, all, all the islands right along through here. The second South Carolina has got a little bit wider net. Um, some of the guys from the second South Carolina were people who had been liberated, for example, by Harriet Tubman on the Cumbahee Raid uh, in June of 1863. Um, so like, we kind of see that in action, right? Um, the other thing we see in action uh, in, in, the movie, in the movie Glory uh, is you actually see Penn School, right? It's not labeled that. But we know that, for example, you mentioned the 4th of July a minute ago. We know, for example, that the 54th Massachusetts uh, went to the 4th of July celebration at Brick Baptist Church, which is basically today part of our park on St. Helena Island. Um, and we know that the kids all stood out in front of the church and sang, My Country Tis of Thee. Well, what's the scene in the movie, right? They're all gathered up and you see the kids with the teachers uh, and they're singing, My Country Tis of Thee. And they start introducing Colonel Shaw, all these northern missionaries. That's the Port Royal experiment, right? This, this, this early effort to, uh, to try to provide educational opportunities for, for people who had just been enslaved. Uh, so I love that we see that um, on film. Now, the thing I'm always quick to, to point out to people, though, is that you know, in the movie, they portray uh, the first and second South Carolina as being sort of not organized, not good soldiers. Um, and that's nothing could be farther from the truth. Now, the reason they did that probably in the movie um, I've not spoken with the producers about it, but the reason they uh, did that in the movie likely was to, you know, sort of juxtapose, you know, show the 54th as being really good, right? Well, for them to look really good, you got to make somebody else look not as good. So that's one of the reasons why they took some of those liberties uh, with the first and second South Carolina. But by all accounts, um, from both white and black observers throughout the Low Country, that the men of the first and second South Carolina marched, fought, had every bit as much military discipline as any other regiment in the army. Um, their commanding officer was not a horrid racist as he's portrayed in the movie. Um, some of the people that were actually involved in organizing uh, that regiment, uh, the first South Carolina had actually been some of the people that had gone, had like gone to Kansas with like John Brown uh, and were part of the people that were trying to uh, financially and, uh, and politically back uh, John Brown and the Harper's Ferry raid. Um, so these aren't like, you know, a bunch of racists who are down here holding, uh, you know, managing the, this regiment like like it's a plantation or something. Um, the one thing that they don't do right in the movie that they do it right, but I wish that they would would have done it in the right place. The scene where the where they all tear up their paychecks. Um, that actually didn't happen in Boston. That happened here. Um, the regiment was encamped. Um, out near uh, where today is Fort Fremont, um, which is an old Spanish-American war fort um, down at kind of the southern end of, Lady, of uh, St. Helena Island, um, right across from Hilton Head, uh, they're encamped there when they get word that they're going to be paid less. Um, and so that whole, that whole scene of them, you know, we're going to refuse our pay, that should have actually taken place here. Um, but sort of the one scene, if I could go back and reshoot it, I'd say, oh, man, y'all got to move that down here to the low country. But, uh, but yeah, <laughs> no, that's, it's, good. It's, that's great. Yeah, I hope I didn't put you in a precarious position. No, 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 not at all. I, th I think I think after after thirty years, I don't think that the producers of, of Glory are going to come after old Park Ranger Chris for saying, "I wish y'all to move this one scene." You know, no, 
but I also too, you know, I'm gonna be honest with you, I haven't really revisited that movie in quite some time. Um, and not for any reason other than it just right. I just haven't caught it. But now I think you giving you're giving me and perhaps those listening an incentive, excuse me, an incentive to go back and rewatch it with this with this right. newfound, you know, with these extra bits of, of information. So um yeah i think that's important yeah and 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 also just just as someone um because of the current climate uh we see a lot of people adding context to movies that take place or that cover like gone with the wind if you watch tcm they've added like a panel discussion and Mm -hmm. some other context and it's it's great to hear you say that this movie is one of the better movies made covering that era. So people can feel better about that depiction of civil war and, and the beginning of reconstruction. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's got, it's, it's got its little quirks and probably the, the, the biggest thing that I would tell people about, about, and it's, and it's the challenge with talking about reconstruction at large, not just with the movie glory, but, we have a tendency sometimes with reconstruction and especially with the Port Royal experiment to sort of frame it in the context of it were this way, but sort of the trope of the white savior, right? We look at guys, we, we think of glory as being the story of Robert Gouldshaw coming down South. and He's going to do this and this and this. Well, or we think about, you know, the teachers who are coming down South. And if we can kind of figure out how to shift that perspective, right? How do we talk about this from the perspective of, some of the uh, the people who are affected by this the most, who are the participants um, in in these in the Port Royal experiment, in, in some of these efforts to uh, to recruit black soldiers. I mean, what is their experience? What is their what what is what is their life like doing this? Um, and so, thinking about the Fifty Fourth Massachusetts specifically, um, there's a uh, one of the one of the men in the regiment, uh, a guy named James H. Gooding. Um, who I first encountered when I worked at Andersonville. He actually ended up dying in prison camp um, in uh, July of 1864. But uh, he was uh, from New Bedford, Massachusetts, um, and was very well educated, very well read. Um, if you if you think about the movie Glory, I mean, he would have been very similar to the character of Thomas, um, which uh, uh, most of the men in the 54th were were northern born fairly well educated um but uh and kind of come from all over the north but uh but james h gooding was from new bedford massachusetts he worked on a whaling ship and so when he joined the army the new bedford mercury the newspaper out of out of new bedford um basically said hey we need you to keep sending us letters sort of reports from the front and so much of what we know about the experience of the 54th massachusetts comes from these letters that james gooding wrote uh to the new bedford mercury which you can find um the the copies of those. I mean, you can find, you can go read digitized newspaper versions on the Library of Congress website. Um, uh, but somebody a few years ago also edited uh, James Gooding's letters um, into a book called On the Altar of Freedom. Um, so again, if you're kind of thinking about glory from the perspective of, and the 54th from the perspective of, you know, those black soldiers, because it's their story, right? James H. Gooding is a great place to, 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 to start. Thank you. And I think, thank you so much for that book record. Cause I was going to actually, that would be one of the last questions, but I wanted to ask this <laughs> next question questions about, cause I really do want to get your book recommendations, but um, I want to, so we talked a lot about the men who figured prominently um, in this history. When I visited and you, um, you know, shared the history of, of, yeah. um, of Fort Saxon, you mentioned mm-hmm. one woman in particular. Oh, yeah. Okay. Talk about her. Oh yeah. Well, it's not just her, it's lots of hers, right? It's lots of women. So, uh, so much, so this port, this idea of the Port Royal experiment, right? Where people are gonna come south um, and try to set up these schools. Most of this is being done out of these abolitionist societies uh, that have been operating up north for, you know, decades. I mean, they've been chomping at the bit to come south and try to build schools and educate uh, and educate black people. Um, and so who sort of forms the backbone of these abolitionist societies? It's women, right? And so throughout Reconstruction, the work of building these schools is often done on the ground by, by women. Uh, here locally, um, most, well, most notably, uh, Laura Town and Ellen Murray are, are two women from Pennsylvania who came here and established the Penn School. 
Um, they first met out of a plantation called the Oaks Plantation, uh, and starting in April of 1862. Um, and then by, by that fall, they were uh, moved over to Brick Church, Brick Baptist, um, and were joined by Charlotte Fortin. Um, I believe when we were out at, when you and I met out at Camp Saxton, I was reading from Charlotte Fortin's um, diary, yes. Um, yes. Which, which is a published account. Um, you, can, you can certainly find that one um, out there, the diary of Charlotte Fortin. And she's fascinating because, you know, she's a, she's freeborn uh, black woman up north from up north um, who's very well educated and comes south and is one of the teachers at the Penn School. Um, she's, she actually marries into the Grimke family. Um, so if you're familiar with the Grimke sisters, so she marries into that family. Um, uh, very prominent, you know, she ends up getting involved in, in some, some, a lot of pre-war abolitionist uh, efforts. Um, but uh, it's not just Laura Town and Ellen Murray and Charlotte Fortin. Um, right after the war here, it's, it's you know, Rachel Crane Mather. Um, you know, the, the, the country is filled with these women who come south to do this work, right? I, I dare say reconstruction does not happen without women like Laura Town, Ellen Murray, Charlotte Fortin. Um, even as we're thinking about here in the low country, so much of what we know about the first South Carolina infantry comes not necessarily from all their military commanders, but comes from the diary and journals of Susie King Taylor, who was the nurse for the regiment. Uh, and she'd been born uh, enslaved uh, in coastal Georgia um, and ends up you know, being a nurse uh, for these uh, for this regiment. Her account is, is uh, of the regiment, of life in the regiment, is one of the best accounts we have of military life here in the South Carolina Lowcountry. Um, you know, as we think about uh, you know, Harriet Tubman, I mean, certainly one of the most famous people um, of, of the era. Um, you know, she's here working as a nurse somewhere. We know that she's living somewhere in downtown Beaufort, uh, participates in the Cumbahee Raid, liberates over 700 people, um, from Colleton, from rice plantations up around Colleton County, um, right along the, the Beaufort County, Colleton County line. Um, you may drive it up and down Highway 17, you've probably passed the, the Harriet Tubman Bridge. That's where the Cumbie Ferry was. Uh, you, she participates in this military raid that literally liberates 700 people. They bring them back to Beaufort. Harriet Tubman gives them a speech, and a whole bunch of them end up joining the Army. Um, you know, so she's certainly an important, uh, important figure. Uh, in here in Reconstruction, uh, uh, Low Country, even even Clara Barton, right? I mean, with some of her work uh, as a nurse, brings her into the Low Country, um, working out at Hilton Head for a little bit, um, as well as being involved here in Beaufort. Some um, not only during the war, but even well afterwards. I mean, after the uh, Hurricane of eighteen ninety three, um, you know, she was here uh, helping. I believe she was here helping do, or the Red Cross was at least helping do some some disaster recovery work. So uh, again without women like Charlotte Fortin, right? There is no reconstruction. Um, yeah. And so I think it's very important we, we center their stories in this. Thank you so much. I, you really, I mean, this is, this is an earful. This is, um, I'm really, this is great though. I, I am enjoying this. I, I wanted to ask you and I, and I posed this question to you or rather, I think you even um, uh, brought this up and, and made me mm -hmm. think. Um, currently, again, um, the current political climate um, has has definitely had a lot of people revisiting history, right? And a lot of conversations around monuments. And, and I'm not going to ask you about that, but I do want to ask. You, I want to ask you more. Is are is there are there any parallels between the current Black Lives Matter movement and Reconstruction? Do you see any historical uh, parallels? I think so. So before we can before kind of directly answering that, I think it's important to understand well what happens to Reconstruction, right? I mean, we, we've been sitting here talking about Reconstruction as being this moment in the sun, to quote W.B. Du Bois, right? He called Reconstruction this brief moment in the sun, and that's this inspirational, oh, my God, man, this is black citizenship, black office holders. Um, what happened, right? I mean, as Du Bois words it, he says, you know, uh, he says Reconstruction is, is a brief moment in the sun and then slid back towards slavery. You know, Reconstruction ends. And this process of how do we try to go from being a slave society to one that's not, to be honest with you, we stopped trying um, in the late 1800s. Um, and so to understand or to talk about at least the history of what's happening right now throughout the country, you know, we have to look to the, to the end of Reconstruction and how does Reconstruction end. And the seeds for how Reconstruction ends are planted 
right there in the in the constitutional amendments. Um, you know, the Thirteenth Amendment. You know, right? It's this thing we celebrate. Slavery is abolished, but it's got a really important clause, right? Slavery is abolished except as punishment for a crime. Well, what that constitutional amendment has now done is it's incentivized people, say like in the 1870s or 1880s, as they're trying to, white people, as they're trying to sort of take back over their governments, take back over state and local governments, that clause has created a little bit of an incentive for them to uh, basically start arresting black people willy-nilly because then once they've been arrested and convicted, you can re-enslave them legally, right? You can you put a black man in jail in 1875 or 1880, and the the county or whoever's holding him in jail can then literally lease him back out to the plantations to pick cotton or rice or whatever the case may be. And so you've created this the the, the official name of convict leasing. Um, but it creates this system by which people are sort of that naturally is not the right word, but where people are, are going in and trying to figure out every excuse they can to arrest black people in the 1870s and 1880s um, to make sure that black people can't stop this. Well, they say, oh, we can't, well, how, how are we going to stop black citizenship? Well, the Constitution says that you can't take away the right to vote. Well, that's not exactly true. The 15th Amendment doesn't say that the right to vote, it doesn't guarantee a right to vote. It says that your right to vote can't be denied based on race. And so that creates the loophole by which they say, well, what other loophole, what other ways can we deny you the right to vote based on, right? Oh, you're convicted of a crime. Well, we'll pass a law that says, you know, convicted felons can't vote. And that's, that kind of stuff's happening in the 1880s. Um, a lot, 1880s into the 1890s. And so you kind of see where this sort of happens in a cycle a little bit, right? Where, you know, if you've got incentive to arrest people under the 13th Amendment, um, well, then you pass a law that says, well, once they've been arrested, they can't vote. It doesn't take very long to effectively shut down black citizenship. Um, and by 1900, that to be blunt, effectively shutting down black citizenship is pretty well entrenched. Um, you know, the Plessy versus Ferguson cases, I think like 1894, um, South Carolina passes a new constitution in 1895 over overturning the one Robert Smalls uh, had helped write in 1868. Um, and so by 1900, this sort of system is in place where we're going to revert back to, to use a phrase, second-class citizenship. Um, and so as we, we start, as, as people around the country are starting to think about, you know, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement or, or, or any of these different, different social movements that are out there, you know, reconstruction is at the heart of where some of this came from, if that kind of makes a little bit of sense. Um, hopefully I haven't just rambled on too much. Um, no, 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 no. When you think, you know, when you think about the origins of um, our current criminal justice system and our current prison system, I think you, um, you aptly tied those two together in terms of like the origins and perhaps some of the, some of the com complex issues that we're trying to navigate um, today and what folks have, I guess, been inspired to take to the streets and, and uh, you know, protest against. So I, I actually, um, I just want to just really say in all, in all honesty and all sincerity, thank you so much, because I don't think I, that's what my work is, is trying to do is trying to, to tell you that the history that we've lived through, um, it, it informs, it informs contemporary issues. And I think you did that um, quite eloquently. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, you know, one of the, one of the big challenges that national park, and this isn't just true of reconstruction or national historical park. Um, this is true of every national park site of every museum in the country, right? Is intellectually, we know that museums and historic sites aren't neutral, right? I mean, we sort of intellectually know that, um, to use a phrase that, that you see a lot, you know, neutrality favors the oppressor. Um, but we also, in national park sites, we have sort of a legislative mandate to be neutral. And so that's why we're all very careful about, you know, for example, like as we talk about reconstruction, you know, we're going to kind of peter off the conversation a little bit as we get to about 1900, because that's sort of our official time period. Um, 
the challenge becomes is what happens when the current politics or the current issues sort of spill over into your park story. So for example, um, I was working at a Civil War battlefield, um, Chickamauga Battlefield, um, in the summer of 2015, when, when uh, uh, Dylan Roof went into to Mother Emanuel and, and murdered those people. You know, and that sort of sparked this debate about the role of Confederate flags and iconography in the country. Well, when you're working at a Civil War battlefield, how do you thread that needle, right, um, of Confederate iconography versus what's happening in the world? Um, and I think people that work at, you know, battlefields right now are dealing with some of that right now um, with some of these debates over monuments and stuff. Uh, and even us here at Reconstruction Air National Historical Park, even though we don't have any monuments, I mean, I know you used that phrase a couple of times, um, you know, that's a park designation, but we don't have like a stone monument or anything like that. Um, yeah, but as, as people are in the streets sometimes right now using the phrase, I saw in the news the other day, uh, somebody was talking about, you know, this moment as being a third reconstruction, right? I mean, so how do we, how do we thread that needle a little bit, um, is, is arguably the biggest challenge, the most difficult thing, I, I think, that, that park rangers or interpreters at any public site uh, are faced with right now. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't even, um, I hadn't even considered that, but I, I can imagine it's a challenge for a lot of folk. Um, for those who um, who want to know more or visit, I know COVID is complicating tourism yeah. and and things like that. But right. how can folks, how can folks right now, as of the time of this recording, uh, in in late July or mid July, how can folks access the park or or the my, yeah. you know, the yeah. Tell me, tell me how to do that. Well, so uh, one of the cool things about our park um, is that the fact we're a non-traditional park, right? It's, it's, you know, if you go to the Great Smoky Mountains, uh, you know, here's the designated park boundary. You have to drive through that gate. And if they want to put that, and if they want to put a barricade up or whatever, well, then it's, it's closed. Well, with us, and I don't know that they've done that. Let me not speak for Great Smoky Mountains National Park here. Um, I'm not up to speed on their operations right now. But um, the one of the cool things about this park is that we're a park site that uses the broader history of a region to tell this story. And so how can people explore the park right now? Well, our visitor center is, is not open right this second, but if you're walking through downtown Beaufort, you know what, we, we do have a little, we've got a big banner out kind of highlighting a timeline of reconstruction if people are interested in that. Um, but you can walk around downtown. Um, you can walk around downtown Beaufort right now. Uh, you can see the building that was the Freedmen's Bank um, until it collapsed in 1873. You can see Robert Small's house at 511 Prince Street. You can go to Robert Small's grave at Tabernacle Baptist Church. Um, you can walk right next to Robert Small's house or right across, just about right across the street from it, uh, First African Baptist Church, which was established in 1865, um, which this concept of establishing churches is a really cool element of reconstruction. Um, that's like a whole nother, like that's a whole nother like podcast episode almost. Um, you know, you can walk around and see those churches. Um, you can go out to the campus of Penn Center. You know, you can walk, walk around, walk those grounds, walk up to Brick Church and, and look for the fingerprints that are left behind. Right. And I know you know, people in Charleston have seen this before where a lot of these brick structures that were built before the war, you can find the fingerprints of the enslaved workers. Um, you can find those fingerprints at Brick Church. And to me, the yeah. cool thing there is not just, oh, look at those fingerprints. It's, mm -hmm. they left those fingerprints as enslaved people in 1855. And seven years later, some of those same people are walking right back into that same building as students. Mm -hmm. Six years after that, in 1868, they're walking back into that building as voters. The South Carolina Constitution of 1868 authorized black voting two years before the 15th Amendment, and Brick Baptist was a voting precinct. And so you just think about within, within, within less than 15 years, the people who left behind those fingerprints went from being enslaved to being voters. And that's a really kind of fast turnaround. So you can walk, those, walk the grounds of, of, of Penn Center. Um, the biggest way I think that people can experience 
or connect with a historic site related to reconstruction right now, though, um, particularly here in the low country, is go find you the biggest, oldest oak tree that you can find. Might be one in your neighborhood or your city park. Um, maybe you're here in Beaufort, um, Beaufort County, or maybe uh, I know there's a huge one over there. I think was that Johns yeah. Island. Yeah, um, Angel, the Angel Angel Oak. Oak. Mm-hmm. You know, put your hand on the tree. I don't, I don't know what the rule is at Angel Oak. They might not let you touch <laughs> it. I don't know. But back up, if they let you touch it, go touch one of those trees. Even if it's just in your backyard, go touch one of those trees. And think about if that tree is 200 years old, enslaved people sat underneath that tree. But citizens sat underneath that tree too. Wow. And think that, about wow. who's going to sit under that tree. Because that's part of the story of Reconstruction is what does the future hold? And to me, those trees are just the, that's the moment, right? When you, when you, when I, uh, you kind of hear me, I'm kind of stuttering a little bit. It's just, I think about it, right? It's to me, I get a visceral connection thinking about those trees, putting my hand on the ground and picking up the dirt. For example, at Penn Center, um, the 50 acres of campus, uh, what's now, what's now campus was initially bought at a tax auction by a black man named Hastings Gant. And he's buying this in 1863. You think about what? In 1860, Hastings Gant was property. Probably. We, I don't know for sure that he was enslaved, but he probably was. Um, and three years later, that dirt that I'm holding was his property. But then he turned around and sold it to the founders of the Penn School so that the next 75 years worth of kids could go get an education, right? So even though, you you know, right now our visitor center is, isn't open, I mean, there's lots of ways to experience Reconstruction Era National Historical Park. Well, that's very powerful. I think you really, um, you've invited folks to really sit and meditate on how like the history is still alive, still very much alive, if not through our, you know, our natural resources, but in terms of how we can visit these structures Mm -hmm. uh, and these places that are very real to us. Um, And I'll I'll include in the show notes, the description of this episode, I'll include links to the, um, the, the park and and to you know more more information but i wanted you to to close with perhaps um uh, just give me because you gave me one book already that okay. i could recommend uh two give me two books on reconstruction that are like a must a must read all right so i'm gonna actually give you three things you gotta do all right i'm gonna give you, <laughs> okay. I'm gonna give you three things you rule right. breaker good i am hey look that's you know it's what, it's what i'm here for right um Before you read a book, the most important thing that I think people can do, or not the most, but one of the most important ways people can engage with this story is go find somebody who's older than you and just talk to them. Just talk to them. I I saw Washington Post today. Uh Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just had had an emotional moment. That's very powerful. Keep going. Keep going. So for like, I saw a story, I think it was in the Washington Post today. Um, it's about a guy who, I mean, he's alive now. He's like 90 and his dad was, was enslaved. I mean, like there are children of enslaved people still walking amongst us. There are people who have living memory of talking to people who went through reconstruction, who people who had to hide out from the Klan, both its 1870s or 1880s iteration, but also its 1940s, 50s, and 60s iteration. And so that's what, that's sort of been on my brain today after reading that article, um, is, you know, just thinking about some of those, uh, some of those, you know, the elderly people in our, in our community, um, you know, just talk to them. Hey, do you, even if it's just, Hey, tell me about the old, old, old folks you remember. Um, because we're not that far removed from it. One of the things I like to do sometimes is I'll take a, um, there's some pictures that were taken here in Beaufort uh, during the Civil War, um, and you can see like these small children in it. And, and I like to just sort of imagine if that kid was born in 1860 and they lived to be 90 years old, well, I mean, that's 
what that kid lived to be lived until 1950. I mean, like this wasn't that long ago. Um, so that to me, I think is one of the cool things you, you can do is just talk to people. Um, listen to people. Um, as you can tell, I like to talk. I have a hard time with this sometimes, but just listen to people. But to answer your question, but to answer your question directly, uh, books, um, if you're gonna, oh man, um, if you're gonna dig in on one book, um, Eric Foner's Reconstruction, Unfinished Revolution is sort of what most historians to be kind of the book on Reconstruction. And there's a short version and then there's an abridged version if you don't want to read the 700 pages. Now, Eric Foner would probably tell you, though, to read W.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction, um, which was published in the 1930s. Um, I've actually been, I've been rereading a book uh, by a, um, a journalist. Um, uh, it was published in the late 60s by a name, Lerone Bennett Jr. It's called Black Power USA. That's what I've been reading right now. But anyway, so uh, Eric Foner um, and or W.B. Du Bois' uh, Black Reconstruction. Um, if you want something a little more recent, though, um, Dr. Henry Louis Gates has, has, a new, has, has two new books out. Um, one is called Stony the Road. Um, that is basically a history of Reconstruction and about the rise of Jim Crow. Um, and then, but sort of as a companion to that, he's written a book called um, Dark Sky Rising. That is a history of Reconstruction written for, written like a fifth grade level, fifth, sixth grade level. So like my, my, my son just finished fifth grade. So he just finished reading that this summer. Um, Tony, you asked me for two books and I just gave you like eight. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, you literally gave me like eight books. <laughs> My bad. So, you know, Foner or Henry Louis Gates. How about that? As as a as both a voracious reader and a lover of history, I don't mind. I don't mind if we just co completely just overdo it. But man, I just want to say thank you so much. I am um I, I I really do mean this. I am in awe of just like your passion and please keep tweeting. Please keep uh, just, just you know, uncovering these these little gems. People are really hungry for it right now. And, you know, I just kicked off my book club with Denmark VC's Garden. And when I tell you. Yeah, that's so, a good book. Yeah, it's a great book. And people, but peop, it shows me that people are interested in this history. And a lot of people don't know what, like, for, for this state, and I will speak for specifically for Charleston, to be such a historical like uh, I guess tourist attraction there's so much un uncovered or unknown history and you're just one of those people that that help us kind of come in contact with that so I'm very grateful for that and thank you so much for for this interview I appreciate it <laughs> hey thanks for uh thanks for inviting us and, and hope, hope to see you back around the park sometime oh you know it <laughs> all, right. all right I'll talk to you later Chris and thank you <laughs> all right bye all right. Bye, bye.